Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. We're going to get started. It's a little bit after noon. Uh, Dom's actually uh, on the West Coast, so... He got he got up sort of early to have this conversation and do this. I don't know, Dom. Are you a morning person? Would you have been up and about already anyway? Well, uh, let's put it this way: I've been up since three o'clock Pacific because I'm used to getting up at six Eastern. So, oh my uh, goodness, been, yeah, a full day already. Pretty pretty much. This is uh, my third cup of coffee by default. So, uh, but no, I'm ready to go. I'm excited to meet everyone. Well, thanks for doing this. Um, Dom, you and I have sort of run in the same, you know, Columbus product circles for a while. You joined Pathfinder. How long have you been a Pathfinder now? This will be, I'm, I'm two weeks shy of a year. So a little over 11 months. So we're going to sort of unpack what a product consultant is, how you guys work with companies, a day yeah. in the life of, et cetera. Uh, but let's start by giving people a, a little bit of background on how did you get started in product? What was this a a an epiphany at some point, or was this opportunistic that that you ended up taking a product management sort of product consultant uh, career path? Yeah, uh, I guess we can we can start from the the relevant beginning of uh, used to back in gosh at this point six seven years ago uh, worked for a company a local company called Cover My Meds in a uh, product adjacent role. Um, I was actually more of a project manager, account manager, uh, but I was pretty much on the front lines of, of talking to, to end users. When I say end users, um, anyone from, you know, people who are actually using the software to the people who are buying the software. So users and customers both. Um, working with, you know, large healthcare systems. At the time, we were like a sub, I think at the time, like sub 100 person company, obviously one of the greater success stories in Columbus. And then I moved on to more, explicit product role with a company called Crosschecks, later to be rebranded and renamed Olive. And I really enjoyed a lot of what I had, the experience I had at Cover My Meds, being able, being given the trust by the leadership team to talk to some very high profile folks at these healthcare systems to really help understand and really dive into the problem space and really see how our integrations in software could help save their nurses and their front office staff and their physicians time and money uh, while also helping patients get on medications they need. I thought it was just very satisfying for me to do that type of stuff. And then should be given uh, an opportunity to work more in product uh, more explicitly uh, really just showed me like all these different analogous skills that you have in the event that, you know, you don't have product in your title. Um, I'm a big proponent of uh, really looking for those, those skills um, in other areas. Uh, because there's a lot of folks out there who aren't in product and you don't have a product manager title, but could probably be some seriously lethal product managers. Um, and luckily, luckily, I just happened to, I don't say fall into it, but I just happened to uh, be, it's like right place, right time, right? Um, and so working in startups, working in, working in growth stage companies was, was a lot of fun. Uh, but I realized that all these things that I was reading about, all these things I was applying, um, I really wanted to, I had like one, question like does does this way of working uh translate into like an enter enterprise size company and i took a step back and i and i and i i was very deliberate about this i i, I wanted to work in an enterprise size environment using the skills that i had gained working for you know a couple of great companies especially in product so i tried my hand at consulting because i was like well instead of just going to one large company uh why don't i try to work with as many large companies as possible um, and consulting just obviously lends its hand to being able to work with clients, uh, work in an engagement, apply some things, work with them, help them upskill their staff, help them uh, apply new ways of working, and then move on to the next engagement. So that's really appealing to me. And I would say the reason why I'm sitting here today talking with you, Ryan, and everyone else is working at Pathfinder. It's for those who aren't aware, Pathfinder Product Labs, we're, we're a product consulting company. Sorry, we're sitting in the front lobby. We're a product, uh, product uh, management consulting company. We're very explicit about uh, the holistic product management practice as opposed to maybe um, some other other uh, stops have been at where it's been more focused on just agile delivery, right? Where uh, more often than not, we're just optimizing and building the wrong things faster as opposed to taking a look at the whole breadth of product management and really trying to understand 
what is the right thing to build based upon the things that you know today? How can you iterate and experiment quickly on that? How can you place small bets and iterate and scale the things that do work as opposed to just having an idea, sitting there, getting it funded, bringing in the agile coach and say, okay, let's build this thing as quickly as possible. So you're, you're, um, you're in San Francisco, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm in San Francisco this week. I'm actually, I was talking to Ryan about this uh, first onsite since the, uh, the, the March, 2020. Uh, so it's been a little over obviously two years. Um, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. I've been doing running workshops, uh, meeting with folks one-on-one. It's, it's been, it's been a really great week. That's awesome. So what is a, a, what's a, a workshop? Cause I think we've got a, an opportunity to capitalize on the fact that you just finished a workshop with a client and some of their team members. What does that look like? like why do a workshop? What are the, what is the client hoping to get out of it? How engaged are their team members? What are you trying to communicate to them? What do you want them to leave with? Break yeah. down sort of an anatomy of a product management workshop for a client because I think that will will give us a good springboard into well, what is it like to be a product consultant and, and why do companies hire product consultants? Yeah, yeah, happy to do that. Um, and I can even contextualize this to some of the workshops we did this week. Um, but first of all, I just want to be very explicit, like, the difference between you know training and workshops. Um, training to me is really just hey, here's you know a day's worth of content. We're going to get through this content. Um, we're going to help answer some questions. But at the end of the day, the content is what you get, and how you apply that content is completely up to you. When it comes to workshops, um, the anatomy of a workshop. So uh, this time last week, I sent I would um, you know really sat down with the stakeholders and really they really helped me understand like. What is the purpose of this workshop? Why, why a workshop first and foremost? What do you hope to get out of the workshop and who will be present in the workshop? Um, so after getting a list of folks and really, really trying to drill down into like what they're trying to achieve by going through this workshop, I'd send out a, um, a quick survey to the, to the attendees, just asking them, hey, what, is your, what do you already know about this subject? So for instance, if we're talking about this week, uh, objectives and key results, right? I think that's like the focus framework du jour. Um, it's a fantastic framework. Um, but that was, that was kind of the focus. It's like, Hey, our teams need help focusing their work on the most impactful outcomes. And we think that this framework that we've heard about that you, you have a workshop for, uh, can also, um, you know, your workshop can help us really get up to speed on what this means and how we can can apply it. So that's great. Um, so I sent out a survey. I just want folks, I just want folks to tell me like, Hey, what do you already know about this subject? Right. When you already know about objectives and key results, um, what are you most skeptical about? When it comes to the subjects, I want to make sure that if folks um, are bringing in some skepticism into the workshop, that we address that. But we first and foremost, we need to know what that is. So we can, we can, we can kind of weave that into the workshop. And also, you know, like what, what would be like a big win for you personally? It's like any attendee coming to the workshop. Like I want to make it a personal win for you. So what do you hope to learn? And what, what, how, what would you consider to be a big win after this workshop? Gather that data. Um, and coming into the workshop, doing actually a lot of homework ahead of time. So asking for, you know, business models, asking for product strategies, any, any visualizations that the team may have. So I can actually just take what they have and put it directly in the presentation. And we can actually start workshopping the stuff that they already know, because it's already been contextualized. They, it, it, it's steeped in their everyday work. And that's, and that's, that's the starting point. So after actually putting together uh, and, and customizing the, the workshop, we're very explicit about like, at each stage, uh, so like for each day, like what what do I want you to be able to do by the end of the day? It's not what what do I want you to know? Like by the end of the day, I want to see clear signals that you know how to tie an objective back to a product strategy. You know what questions an objective statement should help answer. You know what a key result is. And what's really interesting, really fascinating about these workshops is while the content in and of itself is important, what, I, what I'm starting to realize is that a lot of these companies and a lot of these, these people that work for these companies just really need help like aligning on common vocabulary. Um, you know, you know, wh- when I say outcome, like, what does that mean to you? When you say, you know, business impact, what, what does that really mean? When, when you say output, what does that really mean? When you say empowered product team, right? Like, like, like these very opaque flowery terms that um, can mean anything to anyone. Like I first want to know, like, what does that mean to you? So we can align on a common vocabulary so by the end of the day, you have an artifact steeped in not only your context, but a common understanding of what these phrases mean and what these terms mean 
So everyone, when we're talking about these things in, in this organization, we're ta- we know we're talking about the same thing. We're aligned on what that looks like. So why does so why does a company engage with you, bring bring you in, bring somebody else in from Pathfinder? What what are do, do they have a conscious threshold that they cross where they go, oh man, we're not as good at product as we want to be because we keep building shitty products, or is it <laughs> or is it or is it less obvious than that, or or are they dr- trying to drill into a specific component of product management that they know that they're not awesome at? Uh, what's, what's the typical sort of scenario for a company to say, yeah, Dom, we think we need to start working with you. I would say the common thread in most of the companies that we work with and the ones that I've engaged with thus far, especially at Pathfinder, because we're very explicit. Like we are not, we're not agile coaches. We're, we're not, you know, organizational change management. We are, we are focused on product management. I would say the common thread is somewhere, somehow there has been a part of the organization that has uh, renewed scrutiny for whatever reason, whether it's, um, you know, it's a high profile program, it's a program that is um, losing budget or their budget is being constrained in some way, shape or form. Whatever the reason, there's a renewed um, uh, awareness of, of this program. And they realize really quickly that, you know, the products that we're building today are not getting the engagement that, that we thought they would this time last year, two years ago, when we first started this program. So they engage with us to help help them understand like, okay, help, help us identify our blind spots in product management, um, help us even upskill our folks. Like we realize that a lot of times we convert, you know, project managers or account managers or, you know, folks who used to be the user for an internal product and we brought them in to be product managers and we really need help upskilling them into being proficient in product management. And what, what I mean by that is, really 90% of the time, it comes down to like this idea of product discovery. Um, a lot of times I come into engagement, folks know how to deliver product. They know how to deliver it in a natural way. They just don't know how, like the, the, the 90% that, that precedes that uh, before they decide what to build and what that looks like. So it could be anything from, hey, we just need help understanding like what a good user interview looks like and what we should be getting out of it. Uh, qualitative research. We need help with that. We need help uh, understanding the problem space, the opportunity space in front of us. We don't, we don't have a good way to visualize that and really help us understand um, what opportunities we should be pursuing. We just know that someone has this great idea. They give it to us, we're funded, we're given a team, and then we're expected to deliver it in a waterfall agile way. I say waterfall agile because 90% of the time when I see any team working in agile fashion, it's just just to be blunt, it's 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 waterfall in disguise, right? Just be just because you release code in in two week sprints doesn't make you agile, right? But we could we we could literally because you know Brett Buchanan, <laughs> Brett Buchanan, who I think you might know, Brett Brett yeah. and I have riffed over over coffee and and beers probably for far too long about <laughs> how agile has has you know gotten bastardized to. Um, not even have the value that it was initially intended to have because as sure. humans, right, we, we sort of, you know, want to take things that are pure and make them, you know, um, not pure. So what's your sort of take on why are so many companies doing agile so poorly? I'll say, and if I may just abstract one, even one level further, um, I, there's this concept, I mean, Ryan, you're probably, you know, where the concept just like drift. Right. Once something gets super popular, more people start talking about it. Uh, the, the the true definition, the true spirit of it, kind of drifts away from its original intention. Right. I mean, it even happens with if you know, you're thinking about even this week. I was talking about you know you know objectives and key results. This really that that focus framework really hasn't been around that long, relatively speaking. But in a way, I kind of see um, some analogies or some analogous drift between these frameworks of you know. Scrum, Kanban, objectives and key results where somehow, some way they get really popular and the intended definition or the intended purpose of it drifts because it's been, it just gains in popularity and folks kind of misinterpret its true intentions. Yeah. Um, Well said. So what's, so when you're not giving a workshop, what's a day in the life look like for, for you, Uh, especially when you're, you know, sort of, you know, back home and, and just sort of grinding away. Is it, is it a combination of, trying to perfect your skills around being a consultant and being a coach and sort of being 
a cheerleader, you know, that, that makes product people better? Is it a little bit yeah. of business development? Um, what, what's a typical day look like for you? I, I like to segment it out between like, you know, consulting, coaching, and mentorship. So when I, when I talk about a day in the life, I, I really kind of bucket it in like those three areas, because to me, like they're really three different skill sets. They're three different roles, if you will. Right. So, you know, as a consultant, I am sitting there and I am helping someone tactically solve the problem. I am providing um, solutions that they can try and I'm there to support them in, in experimenting with those solutions. As a coach, um, I'm being presented scenarios and I'm not necessarily giving product managers or directors of product or VP of products um, any answers. I'm just trying to help them fight, you know, the, the typical, you know, powerful questions, right? Like as a coach, I am there to help uh, guide you to a path that you want to be on. So normally in a day in the life, it could be, you know, in the morning, I could wake up and I, have, I can have a one-on-one or a, a group coaching session with, with product managers who come to me with a common, common problem that they're experiencing, especially, and I have a feeling it's going to happen after this week is like, you know, bringing in fresh ideas during a workshop, applying those ideas. Uh, it's going to, they're probably going to run into um, some conflicts some internal conflict for, for using these things to, to change the way they work. So I'm fully expecting sometime next week uh, to have a group coaching session where it's like, okay, now that we're trying to apply these concepts, now that we're trying to do product discovery, now that we're trying to reach out to, to users, um, maybe running into some, some challenges and just even recruiting the right people. How do I know who, who to even talk to? How do I know what constitutes the right person to be talking to? Um, I've had engagements where we spent an entire week coaching on how to recruit the right people or how to how to um, use your internal stakeholders to help recruit users to talk to you um, in, in a given in a given week. Um, but then, you know, as, as the week goes on, doing a lot of just alignment on, on engagement strategy as well, ensuring that uh, the plan that we have today is still relevant for this engagement and that the goals of the engagement are still relevant to the organization that I'm working with. Um, and if any changes need to be made for the, from the plan that uh, they reflect truly on the strategy that we're trying to trying to uh, enact. And then towards the end of the week, it really um, it really just depends um, from a mentor. It can be, you know, mentorship type role where it's just very tactical. Again, working one on one with someone, giving them advice from past experience, asking them to apply new things and uh, maybe come back and come back the next week and, and let me know how it went. But really, it, it just it revolves around like, again, I would say 90% of these engagements focus in on how do I know that what I'm building is the right thing to build? Because a lot of times when I'm working with the, with the full product team, it's focused on you know, the agility aspect, the delivery aspect. Whereas when I'm talking to just the product managers or directors of product or VPs of product, it's how do we know we're building the right thing? What, like, how, do, how do we discover the right opportunity to pursue in the face of basically being told what to build from a larger organizational standpoint. So do you think that in your experience, most companies are getting the, the delivery part right and they're getting the discovery part wrong? Is that, that, that might be an overgeneralization, but is, is, is that what you're experiencing? Is, and is that what you're seeing? I don't know if it's right or wrong. I just, I've just seen too many companies build the wrong things quicker and quicker and quicker. When it comes to product discovery, it, it's not that the, the, the companies do it wrong. I just don't think that company, I don't think it's like built into the DNA in a lot of companies. For whatever reason, I'm still evaluating that. But for whatever reason, it's just not in the DNA of a company to do the pre-work and to infuse that pre-work throughout the entire, even the delivery cycle. Um, really making sure that they are, they are bringing the user, bringing the customer into the conversation. I've sat in too many meetings with uh, company executives, um, product teams uh, that just focus in on, is this right for the business? Is this the right thing to pursue on behalf of the business and make a, a large swath of very, um, very impactful assumptions ahead of time and not really bring like the user or the customer voice to the conversation. So usually when I'm sitting in those types of meetings and I was a product coach, I ask questions around like, where's the customer experience in this conversation? Like who is bringing the customer's voice into this conversation? How do we know that we're not just abstracting um, their wants, needs, desires, and problems uh, based upon like how we, how we perceive them? Who's actually out there talking to these folks and how, and how are their voices being made heard in these types of meetings? 
is um, much as we're talking about agile of taking something that started out at least a little bit pure and a little bit valuable and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's adrift, you know, to sort of use your, your phraseology around it. Many big companies, especially enterprise companies have started voice of customer initiatives. I tend, I tend not to like those because I think if you're representing the voice of your customer, you're actually not, your customer's probably not at the table with you. Right. And so it, do you see that happening a lot too, where companies actually think that they're representing the customer, but really they've just created this sort of veneer that they're representing the customer and their user, even though they're, they're really not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say this. I, I've seen it probably three times. Now. I think, I think, I think the heart is in the right place. I think the, I think the intention is good. I'm still trying to figure out why, why is it that the cust- why is it that the team that is closest to the enabling technology, who's closest to the business strategy from, from a product perspective I'm talking about. Why is yeah. it that the team that's responsible for using these enabling technologies to figure out what's actually feasible, what's possible, are not also the same people who are talking to the users, talking to the customers to translate and get that fast feedback into their into their work cycle. I, I, I see a lot of times and Brian, I'm sure you've seen it too, like the, the game of telephone. I think that's, if I may, I think that's kind of where you're going with this. It's this game of telephone of, okay, this is, we own the customer experience. We, we you know, this team over here owns the, 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 the customer outreach. And it's like a game of telephone, like where, where the message may come in pure, it gets translated to the team in a way that is um, rife with uh, business prerogatives, right? It's like, well, we're getting this feedback from, from, our, from our user groups, where we're getting this feedback that they, the performance is is too is too slow. It's not an, not an intuitive user interface. It's actually making them making their job harder to do. But from a business perspective, we're more focused on how do we make the checkout experience faster, right? So, a lot of times when you have these voice of the customer initiatives, you have these these groups of people who take a lot of great pride, and I think they do really great work. For whatever reason, that message that the customer or the user delivers uh, gets filtered through. Um, some business prerogatives. So by the time it actually gets to the product team, it's not the intended message anymore. It looks very different than what the user or the customer actually said at the onset. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think you. This is um, this is very direct personal experience, right? If if you're if you're the team building the product, but you're not the people that are having those intimate iterative conversations with users and customers, then at best, you're going to get some abstract representation of what they said, but you might miss a lot of nuance in, in that interpretation that is critically important to what you're building or an approach that you're going to take to a particular you know, flow or a particular user experience or what have you. And so, yeah, there, there's, there, seems to be, there seems to be some resistance to actually getting the product team like directly engaged with customers and users. And some of that's bureaucracy, some of that's politics, because marketing owns, you know, the the voice of customer initiative, but marketing obviously, you know, isn't isn't the product team building it. So right. I think there's just some disconnects there that that organizations have had have had because this is now isn't new, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, product is is now relatively evolved and mature, right? We've got lots of conferences, lots of content, lots of books, lots of lots, right, around product. <laughs> but one of the things that still hasn't really seemed to have evolved and progressed very much is getting the product team directly in touch with users and customers in that discovery phase. And like you were saying earlier, I'm not exactly sure why, um, other than dealing with people is messy and complicated and Sometimes I also feel like product teams don't necessarily want to do that that user validation or research because sure. it can be arduous, it can be slow, right? It can be all of that, um, all that messy human stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 maybe it just for me. I think, and these, this is everyone's mileage will vary, right? But my, for my observation, I think it boils down to kind of like two distinct stereotypes. The first stereotype is some of the best product managers that I've ever interacted with at, at companies like this are actually some of the biggest troublemakers because they're the ones who are constantly um, bringing the customer, trying to bring the customer user voice to the conversation. And more often than not, 
the wants, needs, and desires of a user or a customer are very different than those of the business. And there's a lot of conflict um, when, you, when, you, when you bring those types of conversations to the table. So by being that troublemaker, um, it almost degrades in a way that the trust even put them in front of, of a customer user because, well, you know, you know, the, you know we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, grow our revenue over here. And we need to do that by, you know, creating more. I always use the, the example in Teresa Torres's book about, you know, growing ad revenue, you know, where you have a lot of these, these, these news sites that, um, you know, they degrade the user experience by just throwing ads in front of you to generate more revenue. Well, that's directly in, in conflict with the user experience. The users don't want to be scrolling through uh, an article online and have to just click five different pop-ups just to be able to see the content that they originally were intending to see or they wanted to see. So again, a good product manager will, will bring that to the table and say, hey, this is, this is creating a really bad experience. And the business will say, well, if we don't have this type of experience, we're not going to get the revenue that we thought we would. So I translate that and I, and I talk about that, you know, from a theoretical perspective, but even at a practical level, like, like the past two engagements I've been on, like there, I can name five product managers who were considered, you know, troublemakers by, by the stakeholders. But when I dig into that, it's like, well, no, they're they're actually trying to do their job. <laughs> like they're, try, right. they're actually trying. They're actually trying to to get the voice of the user and the customer into the conversation. Not to say that they're just going to build everything that these people want them to build, but it helps them understand what problems we are we're actually dealing with here. And before we get into solutioning, we really need to truly understand those problems so we know from an from an enabling technology perspective what's actually possible and which what we can put in front of them to see if they actually if this does alleviate some pain point for them. And the second stereotype is the the classical, well, you know, your, your engineering team is your engineering team. They, they focus on the, they focus on the software. The assumption is made that they don't, they don't want to talk to these people. They want to just build cool things. They want to build cool products. And in a lot of cases, I, I I've seen that stereotype also blown up where I've talked to engineers I'm like, Hey, when was the last time you talked to a customer? Oh, never. Um, is that something that you want to do? Um, and more often than not, I've been pleasantly surprised. They're like, yeah, I would love to be able to just like be a fly on the, what they call being a fly on the wall. I love to be on a fly on the wall during some of these user interviews because this helps contextualize why I'm building what I'm building, but also what I know is actually feasible, what's actually technically possible from our perspective. So I can work with my product manager to scope this correctly. Yeah, all of that makes uh, total sense. Catherine put a question, can you see the chat? I uh, yes, I, I see the, the red bubble. I, I won't read it for you and everybody else since presumably everybody can hear, hear can read. So what, what, what do you think? Any recommendations on how, how to avoid it? A question about the user messages being transformed. Any recommendation on how to avoid this effect? So I'll, 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 I'll say this. In working with, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll base this on a couple of engagements ago where this was actually the case. What I would say here is when, when, we, when we get these filtered messages, really what, what that signals to me is that we need to build trust all the way up the chain to be able to be a part of those types of conversations. So first and foremost, it's, I want to know like, why, why, why not our team? Why this team? I'm sure there's a good reason for it, but why not our team? Why that team? Why do they get to interface with the customer? And in this particular case, it was you know, the sales and marketing. Ryan, you even mentioned the marketing team. It was the sales team. Building that relationship with the sales team, the account management team, come to find out there's a fear of if I interface the product team with the user or the customer um, that they may say something or do something that's going to affect uh, this deal or this account or whatever it may be. So I want to, as a product manager I, or as a product coach, I tell these product managers, like, like dig into that a little bit more, like help help put their mind at ease by first and, for, first and foremost, letting them know the intention behind why you even want to talk to these folks. You, a lot of times when product teams are very um, ambitious and excited to talk to customers or users, the intent for doing so isn't really well known throughout the organization. So that's the first thing I always tell folks is like, let your intentions be known across the entire organization for why you're doing this. And that's predicated upon an objective for wanting to talk to these folks. I would say anytime a product team wants to talk to a customer or a user, there should be a goal in mind for doing so. Like, what do you hope to learn through this conversation? So having a goal, setting the intention for why you're even doing this, making that intention explicitly well-known throughout the organization. But also in this case, if you still meet resistance, I'm sure you have a, a list of questions that you want to ask during these interviews. 
just give them to, to these folks like, hey, listen, these are the types of questions and here are the goals behind these questions. And here's why it's important for me to hear what these folks have to say, because ultimately I'm accountable for building something that's going to be impactful for this business and for these folks. So here are the list of, literally, here are the list of questions I plan on asking. Here's my intention for even reaching out to these folks. And here's why I'm doing it. Here's the goal behind the, the, these, these user interviews. So start there. But ultimately, it's just relationship building. It's, it's um, trust building and myth busting internally. It all starts with stating the intention, having a solid goal, and just literally just making the list of questions that you plan on asking explicit across the entire organization. So folks know when you go into these conversations that they kind of have a pre-read of, of what you intend on uh, talking about during those conversations. Is there a delicate and appropriate way for a product manager to say to someone else in the organization, i.e. maybe somebody in this example, somebody who's in charge of the, the sales organization who, who in sales has the responsibility for having those conversations with customers? Is there, is there a delicate way for a product person to that sales leader to say, hey, with all due respect, your team is not prepared and is is doesn't know how to conduct these interviews and to ask these questions in a way that's going to elicit what we need to get out of the conversations. There is, and I think it all starts with incentives. First and foremost, I would, I, I've had these like personally, I've had these type of conversations where it basically boiled down the con- the conversation boiled down to your your incentives are different than mine. Like your goals for talking to these folks are much different than mine. So let's let's just first and foremost, let's get that out of the way. That when you go into these conversations with potential customers or, or even active customers from an account management standpoint, that, that your prerogative and your frame of reference is very different than mine. You're looking to uh, literally acquire new business or uh, retain existing business. From my perspective, I am not trying to sell anyone on anything. In fact, when I go into these interviews, unless it's a usability test with an, with an already existing customer, when I go into these interviews, I'm not trying to sell anyone on anything. In fact, I'm not even doing a product demo. I'm not bringing anything but me, my engineer, my UX designer, a pad of paper and pen, or more often than not, someone's just taking notes um, as, a, you know, as a scribe on, on a laptop. But I'm presenting nothing from a product perspective. I am asking these five basic questions that have nothing to do with Hey, is this something that you would want in the future? I think that I think that's where it, uh, where the nuance is really important because when you're doing a user interview, more often than not, folks think, "Oh, you're pitching uh, a new capability, or, or or you're promising something um, that that's going to be built in the future." And in fact, I am looking backwards. I'm not looking into the future. I'm not asking anyone questions that have anything to do with, "Hey, if I built this, would you use it?" That's not helpful, right? That that that's that's just inviting someone to lie to you. So I make it explicitly known, like, hey, I'm asking, I'm asking very tactical questions about these people's past experiences. Like, you know, what's the hardest part about your job? You know, tell me about that. Tell me about that a little bit more. Like, what have you done to try to solve that problem in the past? Right. If, I mean, if anyone's read The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, it's basically like my Bible for user interviews. But like, he has like five core questions that, uh, that really dive into um, what a good user interview looks like. And I literally just present those five questions like, hey, what have you tried to do to solve this problem in the past? What didn't you love about that solution? And if I were to take this solution away from you today, how upset would you be? Those types of questions that really dive into very specific goals around past experience that don't project in the future as to, hey, if I built this, would you use it? Hey, if I built this, would you buy it? Um, those, those unhelpful user interview type questions. And usually when I had that conversation with, with when I had that conversation with my sales counterpart, it's like, oh yeah, your, your line of questions are actually much different than mine. Do you mind if I actually, in the first, the first time it's always like, you, do you mind if I sit on, on these user interviews? I, I'd love to be there just to more often not just make sure you don't say anything out of bounds. I would put the deal in jeopardy. It's like, sure, absolutely. Feel free to join me. Um, it only makes sense. You, you actually own this relationship. I, I would appreciate the, uh, you opening some doors for me. You're obviously more than welcome to sit there and, and hear this interview. Yeah, that's a good way to, to make someone feel comfortable that, that you want to have a very different conversation. And so they don't feel threatened by the fact that you're, you're going to talk to their customer um, because I get that the sales team or the marketing team has ownership over those relationships and those customers, because that's how they're being judged. Right. But they're also not skilled enough typically to have those conversations when it comes to product. 
Yeah, and, and, but at the end of the day, like I empathize with them because their their paycheck is literally predicated on people not saying the wrong things to their customer, right? They right. they spent all this time um, calling these people, LinkedIn messaging them, text texting them, emailing them just to get a foot in the door for a one to one and a half year sales cycle to even start building this relationship. And then you have a, me, the product manager, be like, hey, thanks for doing all that hard work. You mind if I talk to them too? Um, where this conversation could affect your paycheck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I empathize with that, but at the same time, it's like, I need to be able to talk to these folks so I can build a product that's easier for you to sell. At the end of the day, like that's my job is to build a product and, and, and to scope it to their perspective is to build a product that is easy for you to sell. And the only way to do that is if I really truly understand the opportunities that we could possibly build towards into the future. So is it fun and rewarding to be a product consultant or is it, is there a fair amount of stress and pressure because companies, you know, consultants either have a bad name or a good name, right? Depending on a company's experience with consultants, they've hired in other capacities. Do you feel some of that pressure as a consultant to go in and, and, and give consultants a good name or do do you, do you not sort of, are, are you not concerned about sort of label and, and, and you're going to go in and do the best job you can irrespective of, of somebody's view of consultants and, and the fact that you're coming in to try to give them a, a shot of adrenaline. And, but at some point you're going to, you're going to go away and they've got to f- carry on, on, on their own. Yeah. There, there, I mean, there's a fair amount of what I would just consider like precedent busting, right. Um, the, you know, folks who, have been burned by you know past engagements with with other companies, and um, you have to fight through um, maybe some perceptions that are that are unfair, but uh, at the same time completely understandable, right? Like someone from the outside coming in who's not a full time employee telling me how to do my job or telling me what to do. Um, what, and re- what I really like, and, it's, and I promise I don't want to use this as like a, a marketing uh, <laughs> marketing uh, time for for Pathfinder, but we really. We understand that like all like for the vast majority of the folks who work at Pathfinder used to work at um, large consulting companies. Um, and we quickly realized that like the things that we were espousing were or the things that we were doing in those roles were um, not as helpful as we as they possibly could have been prior to um, coming to Pathfinder. So like we we come from these from these backgrounds where like we empathize with folks who may be. Uh, hesitant to work with a consultant because they've been burned in the past by some way, by some, in some way, shape or form. So from our perspective, like we really try to build a partnership. So like our, the way we structure engagements is, is actually fairly interesting. We don't, it's not like output based, right? We're not saying, Oh, we're going to come in for three months and get you, um, you know, your, your, your product strategy in, in a good spot. We're, we're going to come in and, and for three months, six months, uh, we're going to help you, get your strategy aligned, um, your, your, you know, to, to, to your objectives and key results. And we're going to, we're going to help you tie your roadmaps to your key results and in and, and service to your, to your objectives. Um, it's a little bit more nuanced now. We, and we're very explicit. Like we want to be a partner. We want to come in and steep ourselves in your context. And then we want to come up with a strategy that makes the most sense for you. So that might include um, a lot of coaching with product managers. It might include a lot of coaching for, directors or VPs of product who are, who are responsible for creating the context and the environment for strong product management to take place. Um, so I think, I think it's, 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 it's interesting because there's kind of like this breath of fresh air where it's like, I've seen, and I've actually heard this, you know, this week, um, you know, some past engagements where we didn't just come in with a solution in mind and said, okay, here's our fixed timeline and fixed scope. And we're going to make this happen for you. Like we don't overpromise that we we're very upfront with, we don't know what the future is going to look like, but give us some time to gather some data and some context. Let's build a strategy that we can actually align upon and let's have a game plan to make that strategy sing. Let's have a strategy, let's have a game plan that is in service to the strategy and let's, let's touch base every week to make sure that this plan is still relevant. And if not, let's switch it up. Let's see what we actually need to do moving forward. So we, we don't structure an engagement tell, you know, over promising that you're going to get this by the end of six months. It's, we're, we're fairly upfront and honest about the type of stuff. Yeah, that's really good. Um, because you know, we, even as a, a technology consulting firm and a firm that, that designs and, and devs products, one of the things we get asked by clients a lot is, well, what are the deliverables? And it's like, well, I mean, we're, we're going we're to build a product, but inside of that, 
I couldn't tell you what the del- deliverables are going to be because yeah. until we until we understand the problem, until we start meeting with users, until we start figuring out what the right user experience is, et cetera, et cetera, I can't tell you what the deliverable is going to be two months from now. And and that's the that's frankly that's the honest approach, right? Because it, it, anybody who says anything different and says, well, no, here exa- here's exactly what's going to happen when. They're, they're actually being disingenuous because they're guessing as much as the client is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make this real world. So like the engagement I'm in right now, um, I have a strategy and part of that strategy um, I've aligned to I know, a very specific objective. Like I want to help the program become the most user centric program in all of this company. Like I want them to have a reputation of being the most user centric program at this company. And part of that strategy or part of those objectives and key results is um, one of the key results is a change in behavior from a a product manager perspective. Whereas I want to see an increase in the number of hypotheses that are generated throughout this engagement, i.e. right now, none of the product teams are are hypothesis driven. That was two months ago. No, two months later today. We now, I now have tangible evidence that there's a change in behavior based upon the training, the workshops, the coaching, the consulting. We've gone from zero to 14 different hypotheses that we're testing across this entire program. So that's a, that's a tangible outcome that we're driving towards. And the plan has actually changed multiple times, right? So it's gone from, let's train on these concepts first and foremost, and then, you know, let's measure, like how many, how many hypotheses are our product teams actually uh, testing this week? Zero. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's see this plan out another week. Um, still zero hypotheses. Okay, well, we need, to change our, we need to change our plan here. So actually having like tangible like behavior changes, like generating more hypotheses, uh, generating you know, more prototypes, having, having, you know, increasing the number of, of user interviews that our, that our product managers are, are conducting. Like those are my three key, like, key results for this engagement. And we can actually measure that over time. We can measure these changes in behavior as opposed to just these deliverables or outputs that, that a lot of these companies are used to seeing. So it's it, a term, and I guess it's more of a phrase um, that's thrown around a lot in product management, outcomes over outputs. Um, yeah. And I think I even even put it in, in the first book I wrote because I got swept up in it. Um, yeah, but, we all did. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not even. I'm not even sure what that means anymore, um, either. Um, and and so, how how do how can someone, you know, who who's sort of just digging into product and sort of getting their their feet wet, right, and getting grounded, but then they they're sort of surrounded by all of these cliches and all of these mantras and ways of thinking. Yeah. How, how can they begin to understand those, but then quickly shed them to get to thing, things that are practical and real and, and substantive and get out of sort of the product or the product landscape lingo? Um, yeah. It, is there any, any, any tactics that you come up with to get, get sort of get out of your own head and get out of your own way? Yeah, let, let, I'll, I'll use like a real world example for, for myself, right? Like it was about two years ago and I, and I just been, you're talking about these mantras, like outcomes over outputs. And, and I think we know today, like at this point, they're just, they're not helpful, right? They're just, they don't really mean anything anymore. But to me, like, I was like, okay, I, so I actually dove in a little bit deeper. It's like, okay, what, like, what do we actually mean by an outcome? Like, what is an outcome? Like, like, is there a common definition of what an outcome is? Is there something that um, a lot of folks are espousing that I can, that I can get behind? And I realized that when, when we talk about outcomes, and again, I'm using this as a very specific example, outcomes over outputs, what is an outcome? The common definition of an outcome is a new or a change in behavior, right? So I actually went one level deeper. It's like, well, if I, need, if I truly want to understand what an outcome is, and an outcome is a new or change in human behavior, then I need to probably learn a little bit more about how human behavior actually works. So I actually went a little bit deeper. Instead of reading, you know, product management books about, you know, outcomes over outputs, I, I focused in on this key term of outcome, newer change in, in human behavior. Okay, well, who are some of the like the leading thought experts on human behavior? James Clear, BJ Fogg, Atomic Habits, Tiny Habits, the, the, the thought leaders who really truly understand have done academic and applicable research on what human behavior is and, and what, what actually drives human behavior. So when 
I, I, so going down the rabbit hole here, we talk about outcomes and outcome is a newer change in human behavior. Well, what prompts a behavior? Like, why do, why do people do what they do? Um, and, I, and I've, I've come to um, adopt the mental model. Well, you know, a, a change in human behavior really comes down to three key variables, the right amount of motivation, ability to do the behavior and, and something prompting you to do the behavior. So that, that actually made that, that mantra that was originally super unhelpful, very unhelpful for me. So like what, it, what I ended up coming up with was it's not outcomes over outputs. It's the right amount of motivation, the right amount of, of ability to actually do the behavior and something prompting you to do that behavior over the things that you build, right? So taking that, taking these unhelpful mantras and really digging in deep into like what these terms actually mean, like talking about an empowered product team, that's really kind of an un, un, unhelpful thing. Like, well, you just need to empower your product teams. Well, if you're telling that to a director of product who has no idea like what it means to build an empowered product, like that's, that, that, is, that is such an unhelpful piece of advice. So like, what do we really mean by that? Like what we talk about a team, first and foremost, we talk about an empowered product team. Well, what is a product team, right? And you have to figure that out yourself. You have to figure out what mental models work for you, but it's breaking down these really, I guess what I'm trying to say is breaking down these really unhelpful mantras into their basic elements and then building it back up actually makes it much clearer, much more actionable. Yeah. Almost re- reverse engineer it. Right. And, yeah. and you know, what, what, it, what when, when a, um, a really accomplished chef, Oh, deconstruct, they deconstruct a meal, right. Where that's popular right by, by really well-known chefs. They'll take a very popular dish and then sort of give it to you in a deconstructed way. And it's like, Oh, well, you know, that's also delicious, but it's also interesting to see how this sort of equates to that. Right. Yeah. And, and then you sort of learn, well, it's the same thing, but you're consuming it in a, in a very different way. Right. Cause it's been delivered differently. It's been positioned differently. You know, it's yeah. been constructed differently. This is actually a, a fairly app. Like even during one of the workshops this week, I had someone raise their hands like, well, how do I, how do I build towards outcomes? So, you know, we talk about internally, like outcomes of our outputs, like, what does that mean? And I, and I said, let's, let's table that, that mantra for a second. And let's, and let's think about it this way. What is it that you need to do? What is it that you need to build that, that, do, that does two things? Helps people do the things they already want to do and helps them feel successful in doing that, right? Because, and, and again, I, I, I reference you know, some, some work by BJ Fogg, who, um, for those un, unaware of who BJ is, he's a Stanford research uh, scientist. He, uh, he's kind of like a thought leader in like uh, behavior design. He, re- he breaks it down into like those two elements, help people do the things they already want to do and help them feel successful in doing it. And you will see a change in behavior. So I said, let's just table this idea of outcomes over outputs and just think about what is it that I need to build or what is it that I need to put in someone's environment to help them do the things they already want to do and help them feel successful to build that success momentum, to, to, to build that, that uh, what's re- 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 uh, called this reward prediction error, this dopamine rush to where they want to do it again. Think about it in terms of that way. Don't, don't, don't think about it in terms of outcomes over outputs. Think about it in those two key elements of human behavior. Like, oh, that's actually way more helpful than reading for the fifth time in, in, in a book. You know, you need to be, you know, outcome focused. Right. Yeah, totally agree. I want to end on a, a, another book reference. I'm going to give a shout out to LinkedIn uh, because LinkedIn gets bashed as a platform and a product. Every, every, even the people who are on LinkedIn and using it all the time apparently hate it and abhor it, which I don't really completely understand, but that's people for you, I guess. Sure. Um, but you, you, you and I both saw and commented on, on a post about a book, The Artist's Way. Yeah. And, and, and you commented that that was one of your favorite books, right? When you're going through school, Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why did that resonate with you? How 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 was that helpful for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually so for anyone who, who's um, unfamiliar with with the artist way, it, it's essentially a uh, almost like a workbook, um, a therapeutic workbook built um, on this idea of, of uh, reclaiming your creative self. And I read this book. I was actually given this book um, in college. Um, I took a class. If anyone is from Columbus. Um, R.D. Isaac used to teach at Fisher College of Business, uh, Personal Creativity and Innovation. And this is one of the textbooks that he had us read. And the reason why I really enjoy it, it I don't, I don't want to be overly dramatic here, but in a way it was, it was almost precedent setting for how I, I work today, only because it helped me build the habits of constantly checking in with myself 
and helping me understand like where I'm holding myself back and where I should be giving myself agency to try new things, fail at them and give myself the grace to fail. So, and I mean, this was like years and years and years ago, but at, at this point it's proliferated. And I haven't read the book, honestly, in, in over at this point, I think the last time I read it was like, you know, Christmas before the pandemic, I was just flipping through it, but I've noticed its impact on me because it's, it gave me the agency to say, I, 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 I can put myself in a new situation. I can, I can use my creativity to try to build something really cool here, but I also need to give myself the grace to fail and give myself the grace to stand back up and try again. So in a way I, 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 I'm beholding to Artie. I'm beholding to, to uh, Julia Cameron for uh, coming up with this great book because it's, it's really helped me understand that it's okay to fail. So long as I give myself the grace to know that failure is okay. Failure is a part of creativity in order to be creative. You need to be comfortable with failure. I think that's a great way to conclude. And uh, I know you're also, you know, eventually trying to get to the airport and get on a plane. Uh, to get back home. So, <laughs> yeah. No, Ryan, I, I appreciate you reaching out. Um, appreciate you setting up this time. I, I'm glad I, some folks were able to uh, join in. Yeah. Let, let me know um, how else I can help. If there's anything else you want to discuss um, at a later date, happy to do so as well. If people want to get in touch with you, what's, what's the best avenue for oh, them? To uh, ironically enough, let's start with LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I can also, um, I can also put my, my email in the chat. Um, it's just Dominic at pathfinderproduct.com. Um, but also uh, just find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm the guy wearing the hat that's talking about product. So. Awesome. Dom, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Safe travels. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, everyone. Have a great, great rest of your day. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at awhnet to learn more.